Hello everybody, welcome to this second study on the book of First Thessalonians, Paul's wonderful message to the believers at Thessaloniki. You will recall some time ago we looked at an introduction to this book whereby he records his thankfulness and the joy that he has in coming to the Thessalonian believers. And he recognizes that they have truly returned and given their lives to Christ. He says this, as we saw, because they evidenced the fruits of salvation. And so he says he is reminded of their work of faith, their labor of love, and of course their patience of hope. These were believers that really set out to follow Christ. And for this, Paul is uniquely thankful. So today we turn to our second study and we talk about the preacher, the one who carries in his heart and life the word of God. And so Paul gives us an insight in this first chapter then to what it means to be called to preach the word of God. So let me read to you for a moment from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So now he's talking to them about the servant of God, the one who comes to preach. We have noted in our previous studies that Paul traveled to Thessaloniki, actually from Philippi. And he was therefore an itinerant preacher, or more correctly, he was an apostle or a sent one. The Bible teaches that the word of God is carried to the world by preachers. These are raised up by God and sent out into the world and we need to note that without them, the will and the purpose of God in the world cannot be fulfilled. We read this in Romans chapter 10, where once again, Paul is thinking about those who preach. And this is what he says to the church at Rome. Romans chapter 10 and verses 14 following. Hear these words. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good things. 
What a wonderful statement. The gospel of Jesus is good news. It's glad tidings. It's a message of peace between man and God. And uh, Paul says, without preachers, this glorious message will never come to the world. God raises up preachers and he sends them into the world. But preachers, of course, have to have certain credentials. And Paul reflects upon these in 1 Thessalonians. And they have to have these credentials because they are custodians of the message of eternal salvation. That's quite a thing, isn't it? To be entrusted with a message that gives one eternal life if received. That is good news. That is glad tidings. That is amazing. But preachers are entrusted with that. And therefore, they also need to reflect or embody the message they preach in their lives. They don't simply preach with words. Paul himself, as he writes to the Corinthian believers, reminds them that our lives are letters to be read, that people can hear what we say, but what we say is also written upon our conduct, our behavior. Preachers called by God have to demonstrate the words of eternal life. It could be today as you hear this message of Paul's from 1 Thessalonians that God is calling you to preach. God is stirring you. God is doing something in your heart. For without a preacher, as Paul says to the church at Rome, how shall they hear? So Paul understood this. And so he writes to them and he reminds the believers at Thessaloniki of four things. Number one, that he made the journey to preach to them. That's what he says as he talks to them. He came from Philippi. And the Bible says that he came to preach God's holy word to them. He came to bring them a message of life. How wonderful that is. And then he says that this message is one that transforms them. And you know, when Paul talks about coming from Philippi to Thessaloniki, he's talking about preachers who are not easily found. It may appear to you today that there are preachers on every corner. That may well be true. But true preachers are not really found on every corner. Because the preacher that God sends is a unique individual who carries, as we've noted, in his life and in his words, the message that he brings. And you know, Jesus himself recognized this when he said that the harvest is plentiful, but laborers are few. 
Pray then to the Lord of the harvest to raise up preachers, true preachers. Paul came to them to preach the word of God. How wonderful that was for the people living in Thessaloniki. Just imagine if Paul came to your town, what joy would fill the town. How wonderful that would be. So, he tells them, first of all, that he made the journey to preach to them. Secondly, he tells us that he preached in power in this text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, you see, but also in power. He preached in power. You know, for the carnal heart to succumb to the call of Christ, it must be broken by powerful preaching. Such preaching is effective because it comes from a preacher who knows the things that he is saying are true. That is, he preaches with conviction and he preaches with zeal. A preacher who doesn't must be avoided. The other day I visited a church and uh, the preacher got up to preach. Man, he had no zeal. There wasn't a sense of conviction. He was probably well trained. He had all the knowledge, but as we sat there, it did nothing to move the heart or the soul. Paul says, I came to you. I preached with power. Only zeal and conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit will break the carnal hearts of men and women and bring them to Christ. And that's how Paul turned up in Thessaloniki. He preached in power. And then thirdly, he says that he preached in the Holy Spirit. For our gospel, he says, did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and much assurance. So he preached in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I mean, he says he preached in power and then in the Holy Spirit. Secondly, well, firstly, that he preached with conviction and with zeal. When you heard him, you thought to yourself, wow, this guy, he believes this. But secondly, he preached in the Holy Spirit. How would we understand that? This means that he depended on the Holy Spirit to give him the right words to say and to guide him as to where and when they would be delivered. In his letter to Timothy, he says, pray for me that I, that I may speak in a way that God wants me to speak. You see, we have a message that never changes, but actually it needs to be tailor-made for certain areas, certain people, and cert certain circumstances. And only the Holy Spirit can help us with that. And he is a true preacher, said he came in that way. He knew 
in the Holy Spirit how to deliver the message. You see, the human condition is different from place to place. And only the Holy Spirit can guide us in terms of reaching the right people with the right words. So Paul demonstrated this when he heeded the Macedonian call. You see, he, he was going to go north when he went to Asia Minor. But the Holy Spirit gave him a dream and told, no, I need you to go west. I want you to go to Macedonia. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 10. And so that changed him. And we read the same thing about that wonderful evangelist Philip, you know, who in Samaria was leading a great revival. And in the natural, you would say, well, you should stay here. This is marvelous. No, but the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, go, go down south. Leave this revival. Leave all these people. Because I have one person that I want you to meet. And he is an Ethiopian eunuch. He's going home. And you will meet him and you will preach the gospel to him. So Philip was taken down by the Holy Spirit to meet the Ethiopian eunuch on his way through Egypt. God used him and put him in the right place with the right words at the right time. A preacher knows that. And so the Macedonian call that came to Paul led him to Philippi. But actually from there led him to Thessaloniki. So he came convinced that he was in the Holy Spirit and he would give him the words that would frame the gospel for the people there. My friends, we need preachers who preach in the Holy Spirit. Who are truly sent from heaven. And know how to reach people. In a community. Because they change from place to place. And if we don't operate like that. If preachers are not led like that. They will labor in vain. And many do. Many do. He preached in power. He preached in the Holy Spirit. But fourthly, he says that he preached with his life. He preached with his life. And uh, he says this, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord. He preached, you see, with his life. He lived out what he was calling them to follow. He became a visible picture of the glory of God and its ability to transform one's character. He certainly was not perfect, but he did reflect Jesus to the extent that they could see him in Paul and therefore were determined to follow Christ 
by following Paul. This is quite astonishing and constitutes a challenge to every person who would desire to be a preacher of God's holy word. You know, Paul always called the people of God to whom he preached to follow him as he followed Christ. You hear so much today from pulpits that we should not look at man because you'll always get disappointed. Don't look at the preacher. Look at God. Put your eyes on Christ. That's true, but not entirely true. Every preacher should have the confidence in Christ to call people to follow him. Paul did that time and time again. You know, in Philippians chapter 3 and uh, verse 17, this is the church he visited prior to coming to Thessaloniki. This is what he writes to them. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. That's really something, isn't it? He says, my life is a pattern. It's a template. It reflects the life of Christ. Not perfectly, but generally and mostly. As you follow me, you follow Christ. And take note of those, actually, who can do this. That's a challenge to you. Can you invite those around you? with confidence to follow Christ as you follow him. And if not, why not? That's the challenge. So he preached with his life. We are told that he preached by coming to them. He preached in power. He preached in the Holy Spirit. He preached in his life. And then he turns to the thought of the hearing of the word of God. The hearing of the word of God. So we have already noted how important it is to preach the word of God. But what should be the correct response to it by those who hear it? And he will outline that. Because the believers at Thessaloniki demonstrated it. And they did it in three ways. One, they became followers of Paul and of Christ when they heard the word of God. Preachers should encourage their congregations to follow Christ by following them. They became followers of Christ by looking at Paul. That was their first response. Secondly, that they received the word of God in much affliction. He says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. 
The message of Jesus is most certainly counterculture, and consequently, when properly received, it attracts resistance and opposition. Sin is so entrenched in the lives of people that when it is challenged by the light and the righteousness of Christ, it arouses hatred and anger. For this reason, Jesus said that the world would hate us. Why? Because they hated him. The world hates the life, the light, and the righteousness of Christ. And the book of Acts, of course, well documents this. As the early apostles went out into the world, affliction, trouble came to the people of God everywhere. And so we should be a little wary or concerned about a form of Christianity that finds a warm welcome in the community. Everybody thinks it's great and wonderful. We should be a little concerned about that. John Wesley said to a well-known doctor of his day, after he repented and gave his life to Christ, he said, quote, I hope that by this time tomorrow your name stinketh. That's interesting. We should at least take note of it. And then they received the word of God with joy and enthusiasm. The joy of salvation stamped upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit is a wonderful reality. I will never forget the joy that filled my heart when I gave my life to Christ. This is a supernatural joy. It is something otherworldly. It only comes from heaven. And it fills our hearts when we've been reconciled to God through the death of Christ on the cross. It is supernatural. It is overflowing. It is irrepressible. And that's why Paul said, in Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Christians ought to be joyful people. And when they are filled with this joy, it drives them to share it with others. They want to impart it. It becomes a catalyst for revival. It turns them into evangelists. They have something that is infectious. And so Paul commends them for the fact that from them and all around, he says in verse 8, listen to this, verse 7 and 8, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, but only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Do you have that joy? Is that part of your life? This is what we call revival when the people of God, as Angus Buchan says, are saturated 
with the joy of their salvation. Yes, they received the word of God with joy and enthusiasm. We should meditate on these things. And so finally, Paul concludes the first chapter by underlining the true fruits of salvation and of repentance. And these are three. Number one, that they turned from God and gave up their idols. For they themselves, he says, all these people that heard, declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. An idol is not only an image of some type, but it is anything that is a worthless object of worship and anything that takes first place in our lives before the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. This could be a hobby, a family member, or even your career. If it takes first place in your life and supplants the place that Jesus should hold as Lord, you are given to idolatry. He says, I know you are saved because you turned away from idols. Secondly, they expectantly waited for the second coming of Jesus. He says you turned from your idols and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. A so-called believer who has no interest, you know, in the subject of the second coming of Jesus is like someone attending a football match but having no interest in the game. When Jesus saves you, when he truly saves you, he actually puts something expectant in you about his second coming. It happened to me. I remember looking up at the, at the clouds every day and wondering, is it this day that Jesus will come? There was something in me that longed for his second coming. And he says, when you turn from idols to God, you not only got saved, but something in you 2,000 years ago made you long for the coming of Jesus. Why? Because by Jesus coming, we are transformed into immortality and we enter into the glorious, real kingdom of God. What a day that will be. What a day. And that's why even as we take communion, we are enjoined to do so in a way that we have our eye on the second coming of Jesus. Paul said that. For as often as you do this, let's take communion, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because when he comes, everything he did on the cross will finally be completed. That is, your body will be transformed 
into eternal, immortal life. How wonderful that is. And finally, he knows that they really got saved because they understood what Jesus did for them on the cross. He says, this is what happened. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. That's it. Short and simple. If you want to see what you deserve as a sinner, if I want to see what I deserve as a sinner, I only have to look at the cross. Jesus took my place and deflected the wrath of God for my life and reconciled me to his Father. They knew what this salvation is all about and why it is so urgent that by a preacher it could be you. It should come to the world. This is Malcolm Heading.